I'm Dr. Alicia Smith-Ariaga, Executive Director of EdTrust West, and I'm here to talk about race and coronavirus because we know that the coronavirus is disproportionately impacting low-income communities and communities of color, and that is having an impact in how it's playing out in education. So excited for the conversation today. My name is Cole Morgan. I'm a history teacher at Oakland High School, and I decided to come on this podcast because I think that there needs to be more teacher voice with regards to education policy in California, and especially during this um, unprecedented time we're facing involving coronavirus and teaching in school. So I'm really excited to contribute as well. Welcome to Race and Coronavirus. I'm Levi Sumagaisai. And I'm Patty Navalta. Our guests today are Dr. Alicia Smith-Ariaga, Executive Director of the Education Trust West, and Cole Morgan, Oakland High School history teacher. Thanks to you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yes, thanks for having me. Sure. So Alicia, will you please begin by telling us what the Education Trust West does and how you've adjusted to the pandemic? And then Cole, if you can follow that up with telling us how you had to adapt your teaching in the wake of this pandemic. Sure. So Education Trust West is the state office of the Education Trust, which is a national advocacy organization in Washington, D.C., John King, who was Secretary of Education under President Obama, leads the Washington, D.C. office. And we have offices um, across the country in New York, in Michigan, Massachusetts. And I lead our California office, uh, which is headquartered in Oakland. And we have folks in Sacramento and L.A. as well. And our goal is really to we have a big sign on the wall of our office, which if I was there now, you would see. This says data for the people. And it's all about putting data in the hands of educators, families, communities, and students so that they can use that data and research to really advocate for the change that they want to see in education policy here in California. And I guess I can talk a little bit more about how the coronavirus has affected my teaching. So we went on, the school closed down on the 13th of March this year. It was pretty sudden. I mean, I think we'd been talking about closing it down for a few weeks prior. Oakland Unified was pretty late in the game to closing it down. But we closed down on the 13th, and then we didn't really have anything in place to support our students. So, you know, I I think there was some teaching that was going on, but a lot of it was case management, really having to step into that role with students. You know, the first few weeks were mostly just us calling students just to check in to see how they were doing. From there, we had to get technology for everyone. Uh, Many students in our district didn't have access to technology. And I teach the immigrant students too, the newcomer immigrant students. So it was even more challenging in lots of ways. Um, A lot of my students' families lost their jobs. So the first few weeks were definitely getting everyone a computer because we had to go on to Zoom and that took a while. While we were managing, you know, getting all the students food because so many of our students rely on, as a Title I school, Many of our students rely on getting at least one meal at our school, if not more than one a day. So we were trying to figure out how to do meal distribution. Yeah, it, it was definitely um, a big scramble. And as far as like adapting to Zoom went, we didn't really have a whole lot of direction with that. It was a lot of, you know, like a lot of the students didn't know how to use it. I would get maybe like 10 to 20 on maybe throughout the, through the duration of the school year. But it was nothing like, you know, people were saying, oh, it's so easy to adapt, but it definitely hasn't been easy, I think. And especially when our school is already underfunded as it is, you know, giving the students training on how to use Zoom, getting everyone online, making sure you can track down all the kids is, is, is definitely 
you know, a, a big issue. And I have over a hundred students in my class, or like total for all of my classes combined. It's just a lot of people to keep track of. So it's definitely been challenging. You know, I'm currently in talks with the principal at our school and you know, I'm on part of a team for when we try to reopen this fall and how we're going to make things a little bit smoother. But it, it, it hasn't been easy and it's, it's been really hard to adjust my teaching style, I think, to fit this pandemic. So... Cole, for our, for our listeners, real quickly, can you mm-hmm. tell our listeners what a Title I school is? Yeah, so Title I schools are generally ones that they're underfunded schools, basically. You know, they, they can be found in rural areas, but generally they're more like inner city schools. So it's just like they, they don't have the kind of funding that, you know, some of the other public schools in California do, like Piedmont High School, for example. Alicia, I have a question. I'm sorry, did you have a follow-up to that? Yeah, I was just I was just going to talk a little bit about how we shifted, but I'm happy to answer the question you have first. Oh, no, please go ahead. Follow up. OK, so no, I mean, it was really helpful actually to hear more about Cole's experience um, here in Oakland. And I was just going to say, like what he laid out it is, is exactly what we've been hearing from educators across the state. As soon as COVID-19, the closures were announced of schools, we sprung into action and started doing what we believe Every policymaker should do first, listening to educators and students and parents about what their experiences were. And so we, we held some educator listening sessions with over 300 teachers across the state. And we heard stories similar to what Cole just laid out. We um, conducted a poll of parents across the state, 1,200 K-12 parents and 600 parents of kids who were between zero and five. And we heard that families were really struggling with how to use online technology of home. We heard a lot about the digital divide issues that Cole named. And we use that information that we gather to make sure it was right in front of policymakers as budget conversations were happening over the last few weeks. And we lifted up what we had heard also in the conversations, not only in budget conversations, but around the digital divide and where I saw some of those largest gaps. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, the governor's budget looks like it's, it's very, they've reached an agreement and there have been very few cuts to K-12, which is positive. I mean, we know we're in a place where we still needed more funding anyway, but we were really mm-hmm. fighting against additional cuts, especially in a moment to the point Cole made where we need more resources than ever mm-hmm. to figure out how to reopen <clears throat> schools safely. My next question is related to all of this. I know one of the priorities of the Education Trust West is that you're equity driven. So I wanted to see if you can talk about how the pandemic has exposed the inequities in education. And Cole, I was going to ask you what some of the challenges were that you faced in terms of digital divide, but you've already answered Mm -hmm. that. If we can talk a little bit about, are there other districts where students couldn't get access to computers and how do you fill in the lapse in time and learning that they missed if that's the case? Yeah, so... I mean, the coronavirus, we know, has disproportionately impacted low-income students, Black students, Latinx students, and we know that already schools were not serving those students well for a variety of reasons, right? We know that structural racism exists. I mean, it's even clearer to some folks maybe who had their heads in the sand and were not acknowledging that it existed before. But we saw those inequities being played out before COVID-19. And then, of course, when you have something like this hit, it lays those things bare to all and we can no longer Mm -hmm. ignore them. And so what we've seen is really there is a lot of it's a moment where, you know, California is a local control state, which is great. And it's brought into question, you know, at, at what point 
do we need more state guidance? Because, you know, there every district has really been left to itself to make a lot of very hard choices around in synchronous versus asynchronous learning. So do we record video sessions or do we have teachers teach at the same time the students are there? You know, there are a lot of questions around instructional minutes and how many instructional minutes do students need? There is a lot, too, that's been laid bare around schools. They were doing a really great job before COVID-19 of engaging with parents, have seen the transition be a bit easier because now parents are definitely very deep partners, right, in the learning process. And where that wasn't in place before, we have seen great difficulty in being able to make those connections. And so some of the things that we're really concerned about, especially in terms of English learners and other students, is that there are some districts across the state that are not providing um, families materials in their home language, um, which we know is extremely important. We know the digital divide disproportionately is impacting Black and Latinx students and English learners and really targeting resources at the state level to ensure that those students get the resources that they need is going to be really, really important. And so one of the things that we've been advocating for, because it's what we've heard from educators and from students and families, is that we need to target resources in our COVID response to the students who need it most. So to the students who don't have a laptop currently, to the ones who we don't know where they are, like those are the things we need to focus on um, immediately is what we've been, we've been hearing um, across the state. And I would just add on to that too, that like in Oakland, for example, I, I don't know about the elementary schools at must, but at least at the high school level, there's not a lot of parent engagement a lot of the time. And so it makes it a lot harder. Where I know like where there are schools where there is lots of parent engagement, the parents are available to like talk to, to check in with, to give resources to, stuff like that. And for a lot of my students, it's like some of them are unaccompanied minors. So that means they're living here, you know, with an aunt or an uncle, they're working too. I think for elementary school, the transition might have been just a little bit easier just because the kids are at home all the time. But once they're in high school, it's sort of like some of my kids were popping in. I had a Zoom call at 12. They come in at like 12.50. And I'm like, how are you doing? What's up? What's up? They're like, oh, I just woke up. Just like stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's just a lot harder to keep track of people, right. you know, especially once they hit 15, 16, 17. They're already like younger adults at that point anyway. I think we, we have to find a way to up parent engagement at our site, especially in this time when like, we need to have the community really coming together because I can't run the whole ship on my own. Yeah, cool. So I, I talked with a couple of students in Vallejo. Some of them were saying some of their friends, because you know they they were at high school level, some of their friends mm-hmm. have to take care of their siblings who yes. are now all home <laughs> because yeah. no one could go to school. Did yeah. you find that with any you know because you teach a lot of immigrant students? Yeah. Um, did you find that to be the case with students? Yes. As well? I would say the majority of my students, like 60% of them, are probably taking care of their families at home as well as, you know, doing school. You know, and then there there is a smaller percentage too that work almost full time. When they lost their jobs, they had to find something else to do. And you can only set the bar so high when because the students that were showing up were the students, and this is this is an interesting observation. The students that showed up, right, were the students that weren't having problems anyway before, right? Or they were already good students before, so they're obviously gonna show up. And I think my concern is I'm trying to be equitable to all my kids and I can't do that if I have all the best students showing up all the time. And then the ones I really need to be coming are the ones that are struggling a little bit more, just are never there, right? And there's only so much outreach I can do, so much texting. But like having a school that's open, you know, part of the reason why they go is that's a safe place for them to be. And if, if, if school is closed, right, their impetus to go to class is generally down because they're like, well, you know, I, I, school is sort of like my like, you know, home base. It's where I go to socialize. 
I have food there. There's people that care about me. It's a lot harder to foster those relationships online with people. Yeah, yeah. We did talk a little bit about the California budget already. And I did see that Governor Newsom and legislators came to an agreement on Monday about the budget. And there are not supposed to be cuts and some layoff protections for teachers. But I saw that there would not be layoff protections for teachers' aides and other staff that support schools. You know, how much of a difference do you think that will make, especially as if students return to schools, you guys will have more to deal with because of this? Well, yeah. And that's that's definitely troubling just because in our district, for example, like there's only like we're, we're lucky to have a nurse on site, for example, but there's not a nurse at every school site. So our nurse will sometimes have to go somewhere else and be gone for the whole day. We definitely need more social workers. We definitely need more janitorial staff, security officers at our site. We're actually also talking about defunding the Oakland School Police right now and actually abolishing them, basically, and getting them out of there because... Oakland school police are like, it's like Oakland's one of the the only districts I think that has a separate police force within the district. And so that's definitely troubling if if those positions won't be safe because we need those positions in order to have a functioning site. And if they're not there, right, if, if classified positions are cut, then it would definitely affect our, not only our culture at school, but the ability for us to function as a community. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alicia, I know the budget also does include, I believe, cuts to higher education. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and what that could mean? Sure. So one of the things that we know happens, happened in the 2008 recession, is that in higher ed, the enrollment rates for community colleges tend to increase during periods of economic downturn. And we're already seeing that as the case here in California And so one of the things that we were definitely doing a lot of advocacy around was ensuring that the community colleges had the budget necessary to deal with the influx of students that they would definitely likely receive during this period. Because a lot of times, you know, students in moments of economic uncertainty will turn to community colleges as a solution or folks will use this time to upskill. And so really making sure that the resources were available there for students is is really important. And so we have you know, we're continuing to watch what happens in community colleges across the state. One of the other things, too, that you know, I, don't, I don't know wasn't lift up in, lifted up in budget conversations, but we think is really important, is that this is a real moment of opportunity for K-12 and higher ed, to the point Cole was making before. Like, it's a moment where we need more adults, right, to, to work with young people, not less adults, especially given some of the social-emotional things we know the students will be coming back with. And so one of the things we know works really well, for instance, are things like dual enrollment, that where K-12 and higher ed are able to partner together and help students, for, for instance, who may have fallen behind, recover some of that learning loss, have some extra adults. And so one of the other things that we'll just need to be paying attention to as a state is that we're funding both the colleges and the K-12 system to be able to do those kinds of partnerships because moments like this are actually when we can innovate and do things differently or do more of those kinds of things that we know work than we've done in the past. I have a question about, I just, just going back to students being at home and, and caring for their siblings and just along those lines, I was wondering about mental health for students during the pandemic. A lot of seniors, we keep hearing this, some of the most memorable parts of being in high school and students have been away from home. Uh, they've been, I mean, they've been away from their friends, stuck at home and now having to care for families. So 
have you witnessed um, a lot of issues regarding students' mental health and were you able to address that in any way through resources? I'm asking both of you. Yeah, I've had to deal with a lot of that. You know, it's a lot of case managing stuff. So students are calling, being, you know, getting in touch, they're texting me or I'm calling them, stuff like that. And they're like, my parents lost their job. Like, what can we do about that? We actually go fund, we made a GoFundMe for the students at our site. We raised like two, two or three, I think we raised, like, I think over $10,000. So that was pretty good. So we were able to distribute some funds in that way. We were able to set up a deal with like a local food co-op where they were donating fresh vegetables to our site that we were distributing to our students once every two weeks. But we do have, thankfully, that we have we have a caseworker and a, we have a social worker and a case manager that work with our newcomer students. So I was able to refer, if they had specific issues or whatever that, they, that needed to be addressed, I could refer them to the social worker. Problem is, is there's just one social worker for like 200 students. So it can be a little bit overwhelming for them. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely been, there's, there's a lot of anxiety, I think, right now. They're, Am I going to come back to school? What's going on? And, you know, they look to me for guidance, right, all the time. And I think it's not really that helpful when I'm like, I don't have the answer to that for you right now. And, I, and you know, no one's telling me anything. So I have no idea. I mean, I can give you some speculations, but that's about it. So there's definitely been some, a lot of anxiety with the students. And it's been a lot of trying to manage that. It's hard to do both teaching and managing them at the same time because you want to be able to give them this knowledge and these these skills, but you have to address that sort of emotional need as well. And Alicia, have there been resources made available specifically for mental health for students? No, I mean, I on the K-12 side, I know that the Department of Ed, for instance, has held a few listening sessions for students for them just to voice some of their concerns and lift up some of the things that they think schools should be paying attention to in the fall. The other thing I would say is that we've heard very similar to what Cole shared on the higher ed side, we did a poll of college students and found more than 60% of them were saying one of their big concerns going into the fall, in addition to returning to school, was mental health. Mm -hmm. And many of them were concerned about things like depression and anxiety. And so, you know, we know that it's, something that's very top of mind for young people right now. And that part of students being able to re-engage in academics is going to be addressing the very real social emotional pieces that are coming up, not only from COVID-19, but from the recent events surrounding George Floyd's death, Breonna Taylor, and countless others. And those two pieces together really mean that we have to pay close attention to where students are social emotionally and and work with not only to to Cole's point folks who are teaching in schools but think about how to partner with community partners who have been working with students for long periods of time how are we bringing them in to be of a support as well because teachers cannot be all those things right, right. they they we have to we're gonna have to do some wraparound Hey, Cole. So you and I talked a little bit before this and you said that there was this lack of strategy around distance Mm -hmm. learning. Can you talk a little bit about how challenging that was and whether you think that before the school year begins again, that there will be a plan in place and that it will be better? So, I mean, like the specific challenges of distance learning is really not having a physical space to work in makes it so... I mean, there's, I mean, the students, I can put the students into smaller breakout rooms and like that works on Zoom, but I, I, I have to totally redo my curriculum basically. Or I'll have to try to do that because like so much of my stuff is like group work, project-based work, right? Stuff like that, where it's like they're, they're working together to produce something. I'm in the classroom to monitor them. 
if I'm not there, right, it makes it, it makes it really, really challenging. So I think probably the, the most challenging thing for me so far has been right that the being being or like I was trying to show them a movie or like a video clip and like it kept freezing. So I was like, oh, now you have to watch this on your own. And it's just like, like I wanted to watch it in here, and I'm like, I know, but we can't do that. So like you have to, you're gonna have to do it by yourself. So I think it's just, I mean, the biggest challenge has been like, it's like not being physically present. And then like, if there is a technical problem or whatever, it can screw up the entire lesson, basically, if something's not working right, or if like you get disconnected or whatever, it's, it's like, okay, well, I guess we don't have class now. I hope we can have a more solidified plan for the fall. I think though that in order to make that happen, there just needs to be more, I don't know if, it, if it's funding or if it's just like training for teachers on how to have or working with like either the school district or with the state to have more of a curriculum in place that can be used easily online during this time. We are talking about at our site having like a hybridized schedule. So the students will come on campus maybe two times a week. We've talked about this hypothetically. If we can get all our ducks in a row with the sanitary requirements, students will come like two times a week and then the rest of it will be online. And in that case, it'll be a lot easier because I will be seeing them physically sometimes. But at this point in time, I mean, seeing as how chaotic everything else is just in the country and at home, I just don't, I, I don't know if there's going to be a, a, a more solid or robust distance learning plan in place or directive when we come back in the fall. I wish I had a more positive answer, I guess, but... Do you, I, do you know about those conversations happening, Alicia? Well, and this is one of the, <laughs> I don't know if you want to call it a blessing or a curse of of local control is every district's having their own conversation. So mm-hmm. right now, you know, I know Oakland Unified is having those conversations. Mm-hmm. LA Unified put out something a couple of weeks ago that outlines some broad strokes around their plan. The state budget, the in the trailer bill language, there is some language in there to try and put a little bit more guardrails around what distance learning looks like, but there's still a good amount of room in what districts can figure out. And I just want to name like, what Cole is talking about is going to happen. I mean, I, my son's in a uh, first grader in OUSD, mm-hmm. August 10th. I mean, and that is not that long from now. So yeah. uh, the resources needed and the people power needed and the brain power needed to actually figure out a plan. And then also to realize that there will be a plan and then we'll need to iterate on that because we don't know what's happening in the fall. There's going to be a resurgence. And so having the funding and the flexibility and the people resources to be able to think that through in ways that are really centering students is going to be super important. And I think districts that are able to do that in partnership with communities are going to come out much stronger. And the issue we have now is that some folks are doing that and others aren't. And there's there's not a lot of consistency. But hopefully we'll be able to learn and try yeah. and figure out from folks that are really innovating what works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my biggest fear is just what um, Alicia talked about earlier. It's just I don't want, you know, especially with the George Floyd killing and everything. It's just like a lot of these disparities, which I think a lot of us are aware of or we've seen right for a long time are now just coming to the service for the broader American public. And I think the thing I'm worried about is Black and Latinx kids being more left behind by this education system, which was already set up not to be advantageous to them. But then even more so in this time, right, the white school districts with all the white kids are going to get what they need, right? And it's that's not going to be a problem for them. But for the districts from some for schools in Oakland or for schools in LA or for schools in other parts of uh, other parts of the country that generally have struggled with educational equity, they're going to be left 
further and further behind once this pandemic is out. And so if we as a state truly care about racial equity and racial justice, we need to start getting on that train with with education and providing resources that sort of narrow that educational divide. Amen to everything Cole yeah. just said. <laughs> <laughs> Patty, do you want to ask maybe one last question? Yeah, I think, I mean, let's end on a positive note because I noticed uh, on your website, Alicia, there was a blog that was just posted today saying that one teacher who teaches in one of the hottest of the nation's coronavirus hotspots has consistently had 95% of her students logging on and doing lessons. And so I know that there are positive stories out there. So maybe just briefly, just talk about the good things that you that have come out of this and what you've learned about the resiliency, I guess, of our educators and students. Yes. I mean, I would say that story is not the only story like that. I mean, I myself was walking down the street in my neighborhood and ran into one of the kindergarten teachers a few weeks ago before the end of school. And she just really wanted to make sure that the students in her class had the Mother's Day projects that she was going to complete with them had they been there. So she was like delivering them door to door outside the door. So, you know, there, there are like stories of hope everywhere. One of the things I'm most hopeful about actually just happened two hours ago. And that is that Edress West have been working very closely with Chinese for Affirmative Action and the Equal Justice Society to rally behind Dr. Shirley Weber's introduction of ACA 5, which was a bill to repeal Prop 209 and put affirmative action back in place. And if, you know, now we can no longer deny that racism exists, we know that we need race-conscious policies to do things like target the very students that Cole was talking about. And the exciting thing is that it made it through the Senate this afternoon, and it will now be on the November ballot for the general California electorate to vote to bring affirmative action back. And tools like affirmative action can help us do things like target resources to the very students we're talking about, which we can't do right now as a state. It can help us work to diversify the teaching workforce. And so I think that bill was able to move through because of the power of this moment that we are currently in. And it gives me hope that we'll be able to see some success with that in November too. Do you want to answer that, Cole? Yeah, I mean, I I think that this, you know, if we want to be positive, we can be, you know. If anything, this has shown that uh, you know teachers and students are both really resilient. And even when I'm not necessarily teaching, I'm still able to build relationships with students and and do what I need to do. Right? I'm still able to do my job. It's just not necessarily in like the hard education part. It's more of like the social emotional aspect, which is also part of the job. And so even if during this time most of my job is social emotional as opposed to like actual like content, I would call that a success if I can keep everyone sane and fed and uh, healthy during this time. So I think that we're able to adapt really well and we're able to adapt really fast. I think we just need the tools to be able to adapt to our kids. Well, thank you both um, for your insight and sharing your thoughts with us. As a parent who has a child in California schools, this was really fascinating and and personal to me because I care about what's going to happen if and when um, our kids go back to school this school year. So thanks a lot for your time and your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for the work you do. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. And yeah, good luck. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Bye. 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 Take care. So that was interesting. I thought it was great that they brought different perspectives. Cole does seem to particularly care about how his students do, not only just academically, but their mental health and their well-being. Yeah. 
Yeah. Something that really struck out to me was when he said that the students who were doing well already will continue to do well during the pandemic, but the students who really need the help are the ones that are falling most behind. And that to me really struck, stuck out because yes, they're probably the ones who are having to take on more of a workload at home. And so I think that, that was something really important and compelling. And, and something to keep in mind and folks like Alicia and um, the Ed Trust West are advocating for those students, the ones who already had disadvantages to begin with, they're advocating for them to have the tools and the resources to hopefully catch up and and not fall too far behind, especially during this time. All right. Next time on Race and Coronavirus, we will have Amy Allison, founder of She the People. She will talk with us about what COVID-19 and what this moment means for politics and what it means going forward. Thanks a lot for listening. Please check us out on raceandcoronavirus.com and listen to our podcasts. Thanks. Thank you.